This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Tonight, we'll get an update on Mazda Toyota's efforts to build a workforce as it also builds its new $1.6 billion manufacturing plant in Limestone County. You know, high school student that understands what type of jobs that we have in our manufacturing plant and what types of jobs our supplier partner companies have in their facilities in creating that desire to work in manufacturing and then beginning to develop those skills as well. We'll hear the first of a three-part interview series exploring Huntsville's theater community, starting with Larique Music Productions. We have people who are doctors, lawyers, engineers, professors, swinging hammers, painting sets, sewing costumes. People need that creative outlet. We'll also meet musician and producer Charles Toot Snotty and hear more from the Huntsville Literary Association's Young Writers Contest. Stay tuned. We'll be back after this news update. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Brett Tannehill. Katie Ganaway is tonight's producer. Coming up this hour, we'll have two entries from the WLRH Community Newsroom as we talk music and audio production with Charles Toot Snotty and begin a three-part interview series exploring Huntsville's theater community as we talk with Luz Latilano and Beth Keys of Larique Music Productions. Thanks to Dan Bullard with Spice Radio Huntsville and Dan Paulus for those items. The Sundial Writers' Corner will also introduce us to Olivia Fox, one of this year's winners of the Huntsville Literary Association's Young Writers' Contest. That's all coming up in the next hour. You can also find a podcast at WLRH.org and on the WLRH Facebook page. But first, construction is underway for Huntsville's new $1.6 billion Mazda Toyota manufacturing plant being built in Limestone County. Though production isn't set to begin until sometime after 2021, hiring is already underway, and the company is investing in local training initiatives to round out that workforce. To get an update, Katie Ganaway sat down with Mazda Toyota Manufacturing USA Vice President of Administration Mark Brazil. Mark, you've recently announced that two of the assembly lines are going to be named after two NASA programs, that's Apollo and Discovery. You were quoted as saying in a news release from Mazda Toyota, it's a nod to our city's heritage as the birthplace of our nation's space program. So I wonder why you chose these two in particular. And it was actually Lance Falks, uh, who grew up in Decatur. He is our assembly general manager. And he came up with the idea of this Apollo and Discovery line concept. One of our kind of key values is we really want to be the hometown company. So it was a link back to, you know, uh, you know, the city of Huntsville. And uh, I think just a very innovative way of naming the lines instead of a line one or line two or Mazda Toyota. Are there any other sort of ties to Huntsville that we will hear about at the plant? Oh, I I think there definitely will be. Uh, We're actually um, generating those types of good ideas right now, matter of fact, yes. Another announcement that you recently made was a switch in what the Toyota side, I don't want to be divisive, but uh, the Toyota side planned on making Corollas, and now they're going to make a new unnamed SUV. Mazda is also making an SUV. And you said that that's due to a change in market demands. So can you explain how the market is changing and how your company made the decision to make that switch? That's a big decision, but I think it was the right decision. Obviously, we want to build a product that is in high demand. And the industry has changed in the U.S. market here over the past 10 years. So we wanted to, uh, to be in tune you know, with those changes in, in market demand and, and build a product that the customers want. So we believe that we're doing that both with the Mazda SUV and also the Toyota SUV. What sort of data did your company look at to make that decision, to make that switch? Of course, those decisions are made out of our TMC headquarters and also uh, from uh, our corporate headquarters here in North America, which is Toyota Motor North America, which is located in in Plano, Texas. The sales team, uh, marketing team, did a lot of research to build the confidence in understanding and considering that this is the right decision to make at the right time. Let's switch to talking about your future workforce. So you started building that future workforce just a couple of months ago. Is that right? Yes. uh, We kicked off the hiring process back in April. We had a small 
new hire group of about, I think about eight people, uh, April 15th. But here uh, recently, we really got into uh, hiring for skilled labor, maintenance, as well as uh, production group leaders, uh, assistant managers, and team leaders that will act as our dojo trainers. Dojo trainers? Yes. Can you explain that? Yes. These are team leaders that are going to Toyota plants in Japan and also Mazda plants in Japan, as well as uh, Toyota plants here in, in the United States. And, uh, you know, what they're doing is, is they're going to learn the online production processes and also the fundamental skills of those jobs. And they're going to come back and they're going to train all the future production team members in a training center that we refer to as a dojo. So they're going to act as the future production trainers for all of our production workforce. Mazda Toyota's goal is to have 4,000 employees by the time production begins. And I also read somewhere that it could quadruple to 16,000. Is that correct? Or Oh, gosh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, no. And, and we say up to 4,000 team members, but we will not have all 4,000 when we initially start production. So we will have, you know, the Apollo and Discovery production lines, and we're going to kind of start them up a little bit in, in a staggered type of fashion. We'll start the Apollo line first, and that's going to be spring of 2021. And then three to four months later, we'll start the Discovery and then start second shift for Apollo. And then the same again six months later, the start of the uh, Discovery line second shift. We're going to do a lot of hiring in 2020 to kind of ramp up for that initial production startup. But hiring will really continue through 2021. We have uh, suppliers that are locating to our campus and also uh, over to Athens. Those suppliers are bringing additional jobs. Um, you know, we say up to 4,000 jobs. Uh, so far, the suppliers that have announced are going to be bringing another 1,500 jobs. For the assembly lines, what sort of resources are you utilizing to recruit workers? We're going to help train them up through our dojo training centers. Uh, we're going to use our partner uh, AIDT, Alabama Industrial Development Training, to help provide this type of uh, post-hire training as well. Mazda Toyota invested $750,000 into local nonprofits, uh, STEM education, and a smart place, which is an online platform promoting career exploration for local students and workers. So what do you hope will be the return on investment there? We believe that the return on investment is going to be a future pipeline. So, you know, we, we have to hire this initial, you know, 4,000 team members, but we're going to be here for a long time. So we need uh, 4,000 people now, but we also need a future pipeline as well. And, and so do our uh, supplier partner companies as well. So, you know, through this investment, we hope to enhance the training that's already conducted in the local uh, career technical centers and also the local community colleges as well. Workforce development, I think, begins in high school. It doesn't begin uh, day one on the job. So that's what the return on investment will be, is, uh, you know, someone that, you know, high school student that understands what type of jobs that, that, that we have in our manufacturing plant and what types of jobs we, you know, our supplier partner companies have in, in their facilities and creating that desire to work in, in manufacturing and then beginning to develop those skills as well. Would you say that there's no sense of immediacy to bring in students, to bring in college graduates. It's just anybody who's willing to do the job. Yes, anybody that's willing to learn new skills. Uh, we believe we're, we're giving a new opportunity, you know, an opportunity in manufacturing. Can you talk about the involvement Mazda Toyota has in these schools via scholarships, mm -hmm. uh, different programs in development? We're working with the Alabama Community College System, primarily so far with uh, Calhoun College. But we will... Uh, is that under the FAME program? That is under the FAME program, okay. yes. The FAME program uh, provides uh, students at two-year colleges the opportunity to get an advanced manufacturing technology degree. So what we're doing is, uh, through the FAME program, we have already provided 15 co-op job opportunities to students enrolled at Calhoun College. So we're doing this uh, even before we have a manufacturing plant. <laughs> so uh, again, we, we've started early uh, with these 15 students, 
and uh, the plan is in two years to be able to provide jobs to those uh, graduating students. And so since there are students that are in co-op programs learning the basic skills to to do this job, Mm -hmm. would you say they have a leg up in getting hired at the new plant? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, through this co-op program, they are most definitely showing the initiative and, uh, you know, demonstrating the efforts to learn what those skills are and to develop those skills. So absolutely, that's going to give them a leg up. Let's talk about the announcement that just came out yesterday. This is as of Tuesday, July 23rd. Yes. Uh, Mazda Toyota aims to have 20% or more total diversity spend with minority and women-owned businesses on plant construction, and there are already two uh, that you're working with. Can you talk about them? Yes. Uh, well, well, first of all, you know, we want to have a diverse workforce that really represents the North Alabama community. We will continue to grow. This is just a start, but we will continue to grow those business partnerships through the construction phase and then ongoing into operations as well. Talking about the selection process when you choose, you know, who you're going to work with in terms of making sure that you have that diversity, what sort of requirements must they meet besides helping diversify the workforce and your partnerships? Well, for production team member job opportunities, we we do have uh, an assessment process. Uh, We have some online types of tests that that we have, and also uh, we have a hands-on assessment process. And the hands-on assessment process is something that we have continuously worked with a vendor to ensure that it provides a fair opportunity to anyone of any background who applies for the job. And then uh, out of uh, Toyota's North American uh, corporate office, we are relying on them right now to help us establish those business partnerships with MBEs and WBEs. So we're kind of leaning on them for for help right now, and obviously uh, they're providing the results that we have targeted, yes. Why would you say that, other than reflecting the demographic of people living in North Alabama, why is it important, other than that, to have these sort of diversity goals met? Ultimately, the customers that buy our products is a very diverse customer. So we do want to hire a diverse workforce that represents, uh, you know, kind of the North Alabama region. We want to partner with businesses that bring diversity to the table as well. And ultimately, we want to build a product that the customer can trust. And we believe the best way to do that is through the strength of diversity. You know, engaging everyone from, you know, suppliers to our dealer networks to our team members to ensure that we understand the type of product that the customer does want. And referring back to students, how would Mazda Toyota reach out to women, people of color, to Mm -hmm. sort of get interested at the high school level, at the community college level? How would they go about doing that? Of course, Mazda Toyota Manufacturing, we are really just in our infancy, you know, as a company. So we have not established so many types of outreach programs yet. In my Toyota experience, we did many things out of the uh, the Huntsville engine plant here uh, to support STEM education overall. But we did some also very specific things to ensure that we were you know, reaching out to uh, females and also, you know, minorities to ensure that they understand, you know, there's a job for them in the manufacturing world. So we will establish those types of outreach programs at Mazda Toyota Manufacturing and really learning from, you know, what Toyota does and what Toyota has done successfully here at the Huntsville Engine Plant, but across the U.S. And and Toyota has done, you know, many things, and and we're obviously going to be kind of learning from those best practices and implementing them here as well. That was producer Katie Ganaway talking with Mark Brazil, Vice President of Administration for Mazda Toyota Manufacturing USA. They're discussing the latest efforts to build a workforce for the company's new manufacturing plant, set to begin production sometime after 2021. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville.
One of the ways Huntsville is able to lure massive economic projects like Mazda Toyota to the Tennessee Valley is because it offers a great quality of life. That includes a thriving performing arts scene that features a large number of theater groups, all of them working to put on amazing shows and all of them sharing and sometimes competing for resources like actors, technicians, performance venues, and most importantly, ticket buyers. Over the next three weeks, Community Newsroom producer Dan Paulus is exploring that issue in a series of interviews. Tonight, Dan introduces us to Luz Latolano and Beth Keys of Lyrique Music Productions. Luz and Beth recall Lyrique's very first opening night and how nervous they were that pre-show ticket sales weren't what they'd hoped. And then came opening night. And when the doors opened, people had gotten the word. Kids were like from 13 different schools. It was like it was, the field of dreams. It was. Fantastic. Like we so just all yeah. cried. We were crying. The, <laughs> our ticket lady was literally sobbing because she was like, I have so much money with me right now. <laughs> it was funny. Like just the memory But the community of that. came together and came yeah. out to support what we were starting to do. And, and they were it interested. wasn't a theater, by the way. We was, had it in a church. Mm-hmm. So That's, well, we want to talk initially. about that a little yeah. bit, too, about the venues and so forth. Before we move on from this, though, Luz, I know you have a bit of a background to bring to this, right? We share some Broadway um, experiences. And just speak a little bit about what you did in the Philippines and some of the work that you did uh, that you, certainly informs your teaching, but also what you're trying to bring to the, to the company. Okay, so I, I graduated magna cum laude in the University of the Philippines, uh, majoring in voice, minoring in piano, and I've been an opera singer for a long time, and have traveled the world with all for for singing and performance. And my major first major production was uh, Cameron Mackintosh's King and I. Oh, I said the wrong thing. Cameron Mackintosh's Miss Saigon, right. and so that was my first professional international role. And from there, which we did in Stuttgart in Germany. So I was with the German production. And after that, I was with the world premiere cast of Walt Disney Productions, um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Gluckner von Notre Dame, which was a world premiere with Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz. And our director was James Lapine. So I want to know, how do you think theater in particular contributes to the community here in Huntsville? Because, again, we've got an active art scene. Uh, WLRH is fantastic about supporting that and, and covering that, interviewing folks. But but what's what does it bring to the community that's been so much about science and space and engineering? Love for you both to speak to that briefly. So so go um, ahead, Beth. I think Huntsville is full of talent um, of all ages. I think Huntsville is full of brains, and I think you have a lot of people in in their day jobs that are frustrated by a lack of creativity, <laughs> and to give them that outlet, we have people who are doctors, lawyers, engineers professors, any sort of scientific or, you know, highly educated vocation, um, swinging hammers, painting sets, sewing costumes. Um, people need that creative outlet. And what we find every time we cast a show that we have people from across the county, from across North Alabama, eager to contribute in some way and express themselves creatively and just and just love it. And the people who don't have a chance to do that, they come and they watch and they're like, wow, they're blown away by the level of talent on and off stage. That, that is so great to hear because I'm a big advocate of using our right brain as much as we can. Right. And there's so much uh, educated folks and PhDs in and sure. expertise in that STEM you know, science space that what you all are doing, I think, is really important to complement that um, so that the kids can uh, have an understanding and be able to use both sides of their brain in, in a creative and an interesting way for whatever they choose to do, right? And I think that's a major factor contributing to how um, our arts is really progressing is because the families, too, have um, financial means to be able to put their kids to school for voice lessons, for theater classes at Fantasy, and, you know, and all these extracurriculars because there is, we have the luxury of time you know, we and, and financials here in Huntsville that other cities don't have. That's a very important point, Luz, and I'm glad you brought that up because it does take an investment, not only of right. time, but of resources. If you want your kids to to excel 
Um, it's like anything else in sports. There's an investment, you know, uh, in the arts. There's also an investment to train and to study and to grow your craft right. and, and so forth. Like so. what Beth said, it's not just the kids are dropped off. The family gets involved. And I think that's what makes the community theater really grow. Right. Yeah. And, you know, none <laughs> of her children are in our shows anymore. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I'm, I was talking about Grace, yeah. but yeah. not the first the one. one. But now we have hope. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So, so you've got this community feeling happening, uh, this experience of community, which is what the best part of community theater is having done it myself I think I remember that in a very sentimental and um, lovely way um, how about where you perform and, and we really want to get into this because there's so many spaces we're building things like crazy here and I look around and see all the high schools that have these amazing you know um, facilities right. um, and they do their own productions and they uh, support and produce some pretty high level high-budget production, from my understanding. Right, yes. So we've got this pipeline of kids that may start at Fantasy, then they're in the high school productions and strong drama and theater mm-hmm. and uh, music programs, and then uh, they work with you and some of the other community theaters in town. What was the challenge, or you know, how, how did you go about trying to figure out, again, how, how and where to perform? That's always a hard thing for LMP and because we are nice. the youngest. We're the youngest of all the theater companies in town. Um, so we started in 2010, and for n- nine years, for nine years now, we'll be celebrating our 10th next year. For nine years, that's always something we have to look for in every production, rehearsal space. And we've been blessed to have all these amazing companies and businesses that allow us to use their space. Like we have Spirit Made Steel. We have um, North, Alabama, North Dance Alabama Dance Center. We have Dance Company. We have Progressive Academy Dance, Dance Academy. Grace so they're, they're partnering with you us. to allow you to have space to at least to rehearse. rehearse. Yeah. Yes. Or some, I think you're rehearsed in a high school. For yeah, now we're yeah. for bringing it on because yeah. we needed the gym. We needed the space. Sure, sure. So. We, we, need, we had Sparkman ninth, ninth Gym. And so um, from there, and then we don't have a, a, our own theater. Right. And yet. so we, yeah, not yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, but that, that's great for Sparkman too. So that's mm-hmm. great for the mat- that area because now they're going to be building one. Mm-hmm. So maybe that will be another factor so, for us to think of. So has there been a challenge though? Because I don't know if folks realize that's a hard reality producing a show. You got to pay for the space. We not got- only have to pay, we also don't have the benefit of building on stage and rehearsing on stage. Right. Like when and we're the doing, lights and the yeah. tech, all that costs money. That's part of the budget everything. for a show. Right. Yeah. And we, we, when we put up a show, we only have three days really to rehearse in the space with the set. So yeah. that makes it very, very difficult. Yeah. We don't have the luxury of practicing with our set piece. We don't have the luxury of getting to know our space on stage. So the kids get really amazing training. What about attracting audiences? Um, I was at Hunchback. You had a really good house that night. What, what strategies have you found you know, that have helped you fill those seats? Because that's the ideal, too. You're going to do a certain amount of performances, and you want as many people to be there and the word of mouth to spread, and these are usually short runs. So... Just quickly, what what have you found to be successful? Luz is a Facebook queen. Okay. <laughs> um, she handles all the social media at this point. I don't know how she has the time to do it, but she I don't is, sleep. Uh, there's that. <laughs> um, she is consistently posting, and not just about our show, but she is, you know, yeah. reaching out. It's like, hey, go see this other group show. It's fantastic. Or And I've, I've seen her at every show I've ever been involved with, ever. They are there. Their presence, Luz and Robert both, their presence is there. Um, they know everyone. Everyone knows them. But, you know, in this day and age, you still do print media. You still do, you know, radio interviews, television yeah, interviews. Yeah. You do all those things. But, you know, your bread and butter is your social media, especially when your cast is largely comprised of teenagers. We also believe in family. Mm-hmm. I think that's very, very important for us. We yeah. really establish um, that th- we we won't exist if we don't coexist with everybody. Yeah. And and let's talk a little bit more about that because we're really interested in collaboration. Uh, You know, and and the arts community here is vibrant and strong and ever-growing. And you can see a lot of different things going on across the arts, right? But there's a number of community theaters in town. And we really wanted to to know how you go about collaborating. You know, is that um, certainly around supporting each other's productions. Mm -hmm. And I see you do that very well on Facebook. I congratulate you for that. Um, But is it... um, encouraging and, and sharing talent that are cast in productions? Is it designers? I know some of the musicians play for different shows, technicians. How is that going? How could that be improved um, in the current landscape? 
Um, well, I think it helps out. The Wings Awards uh, mm-hmm. at least gets a group of the other theater, most of the theater companies in town, for us to communicate. And, and, and Arts Huntsville mm-hmm. also allows us to communicate with each other on what's going on with uh, each other's projects. Mm-hmm. And um, we all talk. Like, uh, I, I remember having lunch with the folks at Theater Huntsville so we can talk about future things with our set pieces, fantasy lending us um things from there you know it's just a really constant communication and and again i really think just in my point of view i think when you try to really build uh relationships i think that's number one i think we want to wrap up with a question about what's the dream scenario for the future you know are there certain shows you've got on the horizon resources a performance space recognition you're looking for anything like that um, you know, I don't know if you've had a ch- chance to think about oh, that yes, in the midst oh, yes. of how busy you are. Well, for LMP, I think my initial dream for LMP would really be to have our own rehearsal space and to have a theater that we can really perform in, that we don't have to be in the waiting list. Because most of the time, since, again, we're the youngest, we're all, we always get the last pick. So we, we're always, like, waiting on, so, so, on where we can have. So, like, at the VBC, if they've scheduled things out, you Those have are to, already all pre-planned. Yeah. So we have, like, the last available. Pre-planned for almost <laughs> five years out, right? I mean, it's yeah, quite, quite. Pretty much, um, yes. And then there's other spaces in town that you have to consider, like Lee High School, Lee High where School, you perform which is so fantastic, forth, so. and they've been amazing there, right, too. right. Okay, so it's for you, it's this rehearsal space and a possible theater. Any shows that you have always wanted to do that are on, on your dream list? Or? Um, I'm weird like that. I, it's when we think of a show, at least for me, when if I have to, now we're building, we're trying, well, this is probably what's important too, is now we want to expand that I'm not always going to be the director okay. for Lyric Music Productions because that was not the plan. <laughs> so what I really want is to, to be able to train the next um, uh, directors also for LMP who will have the same passion that it's not about well at least in my point of view that it's not about myself that it's really about the company it's about the people who's going to perform and I think that's what's most important at least to me as a director that that's I, 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 I'm not I don't think of LMP as my legacy I don't think of that as something that oh that's something when I leave you know nothing at all I have no dreams of that for for myself but my dreams for that would be a continued love and passion uh, for for the community that was Luz Latalano and Beth Keys of Larique Music Productions talking with Community Newsroom producer Dan Paulus. It's the first of three interviews you'll hear in the coming weeks as we explore Huntsville's theater community. This is 89.3 member-supported Huntsville Public Radio. I'm your host tonight Brett Tannehill with Katie Ganaway producing. One of the best projects created by the WLRH Newsroom, our amazing team of volunteer producers and reporters, is our award-winning local music show, Valley Sounds, which airs Saturday nights at 9. In this Saturday's Valley Sounds, Spice Radio Huntsville's Dan Bullard submitted an interview with local musician and producer Charles Toot Snotty, and we liked it so much we wanted to play it for you here on the Public Radio Hour. Here's Dan and Toot. You've been involved in music and, more importantly, uh, kind of the science that goes with music, the acoustic engineering, the sound designs, uh, audio engineering. You've been doing that kind of work for years and years before they even really had a name for it, right? I have been. I've been uh, fooling with this stuff for about 50 years. So how did you how did you get your start in music to begin with? Well, the start in music, uh, I learned to play guitar because I have a cousin that uh, was actually a semi-background famous uh uh, piano player, Spooner Oldham. He's actually in the uh, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. I used to go to family reunions, and everybody had Spooner play piano every every time we had a family reunion. And and uh, so I had bought a little acoustic, a little silver tone acoustic guitar, terrible sounding guitar, but I, I didn't know it. And uh, <clears throat> Spooner showed me some chords and how to how to play rhythm along with his piano playing. And so every time we'd have another family reunion, I'd make Spooner get with me and show me some new tricks and what have you. So that's what got me interested in it. And then there, from there, I went and started playing with a first little band at, uh, from in high school called The Tempests. And then from there on to another rock and roll band, we played a lot of college circuits and everything. And we were making something like 300 bucks a, a gig. I can remember working 
uh, at a music store and working all day and making uh, like twelve dollars for the day, you know. And you could play a you could play a gig on the weekend and make thirty bucks for four hours. So you know, you went that way. It wasn't too bad. Uh, and so, uh, in order for us to try to make a little bit more money for our gigs, we decided to go to a uh, recording studio in Birmingham and cut a demo tape, just singing, playing cover songs. There was a studio called Boutwell Recording Studios. I went into that studio and we did uh, we did the soundtracks, did some overdubs, and went back into the control room and listened to playback and watch him mix. And it was it was like cocaine. I was hooked. Yeah. <laughs> I actually started wanting to have my own studio, and um, it's probably about 68 or 69. But I had to do some, I had to do some time with Uncle Sam. And uh, so when I got back, I decided I was going to build a studio. And so unlike today, uh, I started looking around for consoles. Well, the more I dug into it, the more I found out that there were no stock standard consoles out there they were all at that time custom built mm -hmm. uh you didn't you didn't go to a music store and say i want that mixer yeah so i couldn't afford a fifty thousand dollar console or even higher you know so i i bought some altec lansing literature and started reading and studying how the consoles worked and how the what the signal path was and what have you and i went to uh, Lafayette Radio. I doubt if you're, you're probably too young to remember Lafayette Radio. It was a place here in town. I bought eight, uh, they were actually little pre-amplifiers, but it was a circuit board you built yourself in a kit. So I bought eight of those, and you could set them to where you had uh, a phono level come in or a line level or a microphone level. And so I set them up for microphones, and I put these together in this homemade console and somehow made it work. Uh, I just got lucky. <laughs> I mean, I li literally. Uh, and so uh, I, had, uh, I had a couple of two-track machines, and uh, I was open for business, but uh, there was another studio across town that was uh, <laughs> It had a uh, custom console. It had... Uh, a one-inch eight-track machine. Uh, I mean, I, there was no com I, I, no way I could compete with that. And so I didn't last very long, and neither did that place. And the next thing I know, there, uh, there's a man coming to me and says, uh, I want you to, I'm going to rent you my studio over here. And he made me a price that uh, I couldn't refuse because it was the building and the equipment Everything in there. All I had to do was turn the utilities on, and go to work. Most of the time back then, if people wanted to record, if, if bands wanted to record, they didn't know much about anybody in Huntsville as far as recording business. So they, you know, typically went to Muscle Shoals or Nashville. It was hard to get people to come in because they didn't know anything about you. I said, okay, well, you know what? I can write music and I can figure out how to get out and sell. So I started selling recording jingles and that's how I survived over the years I, I bet I've recorded 250 or 300 jingles what was your favorite jingle that you recorded <laughs> uh, did you have a personal favorite or was uh, well yeah there's there's, a, there's one personal favorite uh, now this this hasn't been all that long it was the late 80s uh, I did a jingle for Crestwood Hospital they had their 25th anniversary and they wanted to they wanted to jingle, and it, I was working through an advertising agency. And uh, so I wrote it and did a demo for it, and they they liked the demo. Say, okay, now let's get the real thing done. Who are you going to use vocally? And I said, well, I'm going to use my friend Buddy Causey. They said, uh, well, the hospital would like a celebrity on it. I said, well, I don't know any celebrities, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so... They said, well, if you don't use Buddy Causey, who would be a good singer to do it? I said, well, the closest thing I can hear in my head would be uh, Lee Greenwood. Lo and behold, uh, they booked Lee Greenwood to sing this thing, and I cut the music here, and I traveled to Nashville and put Lee Greenwood on it, and 
and delivered it to uh, Crestwood Hospital. So that was my favorite. You're talking about you walked into the control room. It was supposed to be Lee Greenwood and me and the engineer, and that was supposed to be it. Well, in comes the advertising agency with all of their people, a guy with a camera, a video camera from the, the Channel 19. Oh, no. <laughs> and... I can see, I was looking at Lee Greenwood's face, and I can see it building up. I said, oh, man, we're fixing to have a blow-up. <laughs> <laughs> and he pull, But he did politely say, put the camera away. When we're finished with this, we'll do an interview. We worked for over three hours until he got it exactly the way I wanted it, and he didn't fuss, didn't raise cane or anything. He was very nice. What was the name of the, uh, the studio itself? The studio uh, was called the Acoustic Loop Sound Lab. Don't, oh, cool. Uh, don't ask me where I came up with that. <laughs> that's a cool name, though. That's that's better than a lot of the ones I've heard. Where, where were y'all at in town? <clears throat> it was on uh, Oster Drive um, in a haunted building, by the way. At one time, it was a warehouse, and we cut several jingles in there and later on moved, to, moved out of there, and I actually opened uh, my own place with a, a real console and uh an eight track machine when did you get into doing acoustics did that come in with with doing the studio work that, that came in with doing the studio work uh i i did a lot of reading about acoustics i did uh i did a lot of uh talking to other engineers uh especially ed Boutwell, the, the the studio where we recorded our little recording i became friends with ed and i would go down and pick his brain constantly most of the acoustic stuff was by necessity and most of it was trial and error but i did start reading about a different kinds of acoustic materials there are some expensive things you can do and there's some cheap things you can do if you don't mind the way it looks if you mind the way it looks then you're going to have to go the expensive way so for people who aren't really familiar with the science behind it what are acoustics best way for me to explain it is is uh if you go into a room that has a lot of uh slick surfaces especially slick surfaces facing each other then you're going to have a lot of reverb in the room the formula for that is the rt60 the rt60 is the amount of time it takes sound to decay by 60 decibels when it reaches 60 decibels you, you can't hear it so reverb time of a room is rt60 so each room when you walk into a room if the rt60 seems long then it's a it's going to be a terrible recording space. Uh, so you know you you see people walking into a room and they they clap their hands. I'm not going to clap my hands because it'll drive you crazy. Uh, they clap their hands to see what the acoustics of the room are. Well, that, that what that really means is they're trying to see if the room is reverberant or not, because acoustics is more than one frequency. It's more than one hand clap. You walk into a room the first time. What are you looking for first as far as trying to determine how to treat it acoustically? First thing I like to look at is, is the, uh, the dimensions of the, of the room. There are some dimension parameters for a control room, for example. There are certain ratios you need to follow so that you every, every room is going to have standing waves in it. Uh, what is a standing wave for sta people who aren't Standing familiar? wave is where sound travels roughly, what, I think it's 1,130 feet per second. Yeah. And so if a sound hits the wall on one side of the room, it's going to bounce back toward the opposite wall. And if you take that dimension and divide it 1130 feet per second, it's going to tell you the standing wave. The standing wave is the, let's call it the resonant frequency of, the, of that, that room dimension. Now there are three room dimensions. There's left to right, front to back, and floor to ceiling. And what you don't want in a control room is you don't want standing wave from left to right to be the same frequency from front to back or from ceiling to floor to ceiling. So something like a perfectly squared room wouldn't oh, be ideal. It would be terrible. Yeah. So recently there's there's been a lot of buildup in town of, of new music venues, new performance spaces, that kind of thing. Um, and something I've noticed is that people tend to forget or can't afford or don't want to mess with treating the space acoustically. So if you've got a space that's all concrete and metal, it's not going to sound very good. What are some some good, decently cheap ways and easy ways for people who aren't really experts on acoustics? What are some good ways to treat rooms like that? I got a book that every musician ought to own because it's uh, gives it gives you some practical, cheap ways to build acoustics for studios. 
I would say typically you can order these two-inch thick panels off the internet that are, it's a high-density insulation that absorb all frequencies fairly evenly, but they're expensive. You can go to a, uh, a local insulation contractor or wholesale place and buy two-inch thick Owens Corning it's uh, type 703, that's three pound density, it's high density, and it's the same stuff that these expensive panels are made out of, and they're, the, thing, the panels are about around a dollar a square foot. They're just not as pretty. They're, they're, they're not pretty at all because yeah. <laughs> it's just raw insulation. So now you've got to come up with something burlap or, or some kind of a cloth to put over it, but it doesn't need to be a sheen cloth, it's got to be porous so that the sound can get through the cloth into the insulation. One of the things that I highly recommend when people are putting panels on the wall, they they want to absorb as much sound as they can, right? Yeah. Well, okay, a a two-foot by four-foot panel will only absorb so much sound if you stick it on the wall. Why not stand it off the wall two inches so that the sound will go through and bounce back off the wall and catch the backside of this panel? Interesting. So you double double your space or double your absorption on certain frequencies. Uh, but anyway, that's uh, you, you can build your own panels like that. Uh, there's some tricks like uh, you want to sit at your console and have somebody take a mirror. You got your speakers on the on the stands there. You want to take somebody, have somebody take a mirror and just hold it on the wall over here. And you're sitting at the console and you're watching that mirror. And when you see in that mirror, you see that speaker right there. You want to put a panel right there because that's the first reflection. And then they do the same thing for the other speaker. Little tricks like that you wouldn't think about. You know, we think you wouldn't think, uh, okay, I'm going to put a panel right here in the middle wall because I like the way it looks. Oh well, no. Why don't you put a panel on the wall where it sees the fir- your, that mirror sees the first reflection? Now you've really done something. First reflection mean, meaning sound comes out of that speaker, and then it takes a little time, not much, but a little time to travel over and hit that wall. That's the first reflection. Then you want to look at, uh, okay, uh, the, the, do the math of the speed of sound versus the dimension of the room. You want to find what the standing waves are, and you want to concentrate on building something or, or placing something that will absorb the most amount of those standing waves. By the same token, you don't want to put too much absorption in a room because it's, if you do that, it sucks all the life out of your recordings. I had one more question for you. Your nickname, Toot. Where does that come from? <laughs> well, I've been I've been accused of flatulence. <laughs> uh, in the '80s, people were tooting cocaine, so I, everybody thought I was a drug dealer. <laughs> uh, in high school, I played uh, first the trumpet and then the tuba, so everybody thought that's where it came from. But the honest truth is. When I was born, the doctor came out of the delivery room and told my dad, it's a boy and he's not big as a toot. And that is exactly where it came from. <laughs> you never so guess that So you were literally born years. into that nickname. <laughs> I was, from, from day one. <laughs> well, Toot, thanks for joining us, man. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I, I, think, uh, I think there's a lot of value that people can get out of listening to people who have seen all the changes that have come through the last 50 or 60 years or so. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to come talk with us. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for tuning in the Public Radio Hour. We hope you're enjoying this week's mix of special programs and homemade radio features. In our final segment, we turn to the WLRH Sundial Writers Corner, our spotlight on Tennessee Valley wordsmiths, and one of the station's longest-running traditions. Each year, Sundial teams up with the Huntsville Literary Association to share the work of winners from the HLA's Young Writers Contest. Tonight, let's meet Olivia Fox, who won the Senior Short Story category. She's a rising senior at James Clemens High School in Madison and also a violinist with the Huntsville Youth Orchestra. When Olivia recorded this piece, she had just returned from the high school marine biology program at Dolphin Island. Conquered by Olivia Fox The rising sun loomed on the horizon, its swollen form painting the sky a bloody orange. The king stood in the throne room, his back to the chamber and face to the window, gazing out over the city. It was his city now, and had been for a month since his official coronation. He breathed in, feeling a swell of satisfaction. At last, everything was as it should be. Look at what we have accomplished. You are king now. The words came from behind him, resonating off the marble walls. 
The king bristled, his moment of complacency perishing. Look at what I have accomplished. There is no we. You are not real. He spoke through clenched teeth. They'd had this conversation many times before. Of course, my king, I misspoke. You should be proud of all that you have done. The reply was smooth, glossed with a tincture of sarcasm. The king turned and gave a withering glare to the man behind him. No, not a man. A mere piece of his mind, a fragment of his conscience. An important distinction to make. Yes, I am proud. I finally have true power over everyone in this city. He made sure to emphasize the latter part of the statement. Ambition had become rather domineering lately, and the king felt he should make clear the hierarchy between them. He glanced to the far corner of the room, where honor stood feebly in the shadows. While ambition was growing in his assertiveness, honor seemed to be unraveling. Each day his face lost another layer of color, his cheeks becoming increasingly hollow and the dark circles smeared beneath his eyes, taking on more the semblance of deep bruises. The king hoped it was not what he should look like on a day of poor health. Honor and ambition were, after all, mirror images of himself, fragments of his personality materialized. Honor's odd, sickly state was likely an effect of the king's dismissive manner towards him as of late, but it had been for good reason. He was king now. No matter. Honor would recover from his wounded feelings soon enough. Just then, a heavy knock sounded on the entry doors, and a voice spoke from the other side. We have him, your highness. Ah, the king had nearly forgotten. Bring him in, he called. Not too gently, the door swung open, and two guards entered the throne room. In their grasp, they dragged a man along tight by the arms. He was pale and small of stature, with thinning gray hair and an unkempt beard sprouting under a long nose, like whiskers. He reminded the king of a mouse. I presume you know why you're here, he said to the man, not bothering to keep the content from his voice. Erroneous statements have been published under your name, claiming that I murdered my own beloved brother as to become king. Not only is this accusation horrendous, but it is also treasonous, and if you do not retract the publication immediately, you shall be punished accordingly. The man lifted his chin, unflinching in pose. I will do no such thing. What I wrote was true, and I won't let you laze in that once noble throne without right and exploit the people in their ignorance. A flicker of irritation sparked within the king. This man was a nuisance. You know what you must do, ambition muttered from his side. He must be killed, hanged before the public to ensure no one will denigrate you or your authority again. Only the king heard him. It was he alone that could interact with his fragments. He was their only connection to the material world. The king knew ambition was right. Still, he hesitated. Already he had his brother's blood on his hands. He didn't want to further tarnish his reign with another innocent's death. He felt Honor's presence beside him. Honor was silent, but he stared at the king with rigid intensity as if daring him to give the order. His counterpart cut in again, ambition drawing closer to the king. If you do not kill this man, he will only continue to bring doubt upon your reign, and soon its demise. After all of our work, our careful planning, are you really willing to let it slip away so quickly, like sand through your fingers? The words rang clear in the king's head, a splash of cold water to jolt him from his stupor. What was he thinking? Of course the man must die. It was the only way to protect his power. See that the man is hanged tomorrow at sunrise in the central square. Ensure it is publicized. We have an example to make of. The guards nodded curtly and reasserted their grip on the man. Saying nothing, the man locked his gaze with the king's, pinning him with eyes that were strikingly calm for one so near departure to death. The city was wide awake the following morning. Once more, the king stood in the throne room before his window, looking out over the square. It wasn't quite sunrise, but a crowd had already taken shape around the man chained at the hanging block. There was a palpable tension in the air, a strange sense of agitated anticipation wrapped around the people like a rubber band stretched so taut even the slightest disturbance would bring it to snap. A strong light became glaring left of the king's vision. The sun had risen. From the square, awash in its golden glow, the guards shoved the man to his position on the block and fed a rope around his neck. The man's eyes traced their way up to the window, again fixing the king with an unwavering stare, like honor, daring him to give the order. The guards turned and looked up to their king, awaiting his signal. The king remembered ambition's warning. He tilted his chin, the indication of a nod. The rope lifted.
It happened faster than the king himself could register. The man was hoisted into the air, a clean snap signaling his meeting with death. For a moment, there was only silence as he dangled lifelessly from the rope. Then the second snap came. The crowd suddenly stirred to life, the few muffled sobs escalating to cries of indignation. Chaos swooped down upon the square, a sort of animalistic fury overtaking the people. It was a mass riot. The king lurched away from his window, slamming it shut to mute the raucous outside. What had gone wrong? Why did the people react so? This hanging was meant to be a display of his power. How had it plunged so quickly in the opposite direction? The doors to the throne room opened. The king swiveled around, clasping his shaking hands together for some mean of composure. He started in surprise at the man before him. No, not a man. Ambition strolled into the throne room, his swift footfalls echoing on the marbled floors. He met the king's bewildered stare with an imperious, thin-lipped smile. Things appear to have gone dreadfully south, my king, he opined. The king couldn't catch his thoughts. How, how, how did the doors? How did I open the doors? Ambition finished the question. Dumbfounded, the king nodded mutely. He had been caught up with the execution, not realizing that neither ambition nor honor were in the throne room with him. But that was impossible. They were his fragments. They couldn't depart from his side or interact with the world, and surely not open doors. Tsk, tsk. Ambition shook his head. And here I thought that you could answer that question yourself, my king. The king stepped closer to ambition, studying his fragment with wary eyes. Tentatively, he stretched out a hand. His fingertips felt the cool fabric of ambition's robes. He gasped, stumbling back. You're real. I can touch you now, he breathed. Ambition's smile grew. Yes, indeed you can. The king sputtered a reply. Where, where is honor? Gone. A sudden surge in the tumult outside interrupted them. The people's cries unexpectedly intensified, taking on the higher pitches of agonized screams. The king rushed back to the window and was again drenched by a wave of terror. The guards, who before had been fending off the aroused crowd with little force, were now savage beasts of soldiers, turning their blades upon the rioting people ferociously. It was a frenzy of clinging metal and spraying blood and dropping bodies. A massacre. The king panicked to open the window to order the guards to halt the onslaught. His fingers ghosted the sill. He tried again, but he had no effect on the window. His head spun, his breath hastening as hysteria rose within him. The king whirled back to ambition. What have you done? Ambition feigned innocence. My king, I've done nothing. It was you who caused all this. Your orders that let the man die and chaos ensue. But what of this killing? It was not I who commanded this. No, it was I. Ambition advanced on the king, watching him with bemusement. You have always been so adamant that no we existed between us. A foolish conviction, really. You are me and I am you. We are, in essence, each other. We always have been. But I have finally overtaken you. Unknowingly, you gave me enough power to, and now honor is gone and you are nothing. Moving through the king, he approached the window and surveyed the now silent square littered with bodies, around which blood pooled like rain to gutters. I am the ultimate king now. Power is no longer under your control. Ambition opened the window. He leaned out, breathing in the air. At last, everything was as it should be. That was James Clemens High School rising senior Olivia Fox, winner of the senior short story category of the Huntsville Literary Association's Young Writers Contest. Thanks to her for sharing that story. Thanks also to Valley Sounds producer Daniel Bullard of Spice Radio Huntsville and community newsroom producer Dan Paulus for creating segments. Be sure to tune in next week for part two of Dan's interview series exploring Huntsville's theater community. And a big thanks to you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. We received a lot of great feedback from last week's original documentary, One Giant Leap, how the integration of NASA helped mankind reach the moon. If you missed it, Check out the Public Radio Hour podcast archive for that and tonight's show. Just look under the Programs tab for the Public Radio Hour at wlrh.org. We'll see you on the radio next Thursday night at 7. Have a great night.